This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money, where we talk about how you can make more money, keep more money, invest your money, and spend your money on the finer things in life, all from a Black Millennial perspective. I'm your host, Joseph Oisu, and today we have an illustrious guest in the house. We have Kazim Balogun, aka Property by Kazi, and we are here talking about how you can make seven figures developing and flipping property. But before we get into any of all of that, you know what I'm about to say. So the regular listeners, regular watchers, if you haven't liked and subscribed and shared with everyone in your phone book, now is the time to do it. We're on a mission to reach 100 million people around the world with life-changing financial information. You can be part of that. So if you're watching on YouTube or even watching us on Spotify where you, you can get the video now, like, share, subscribe, make sure that everybody you know has access to this information. If you'd like to take your contribution to the platform a little bit further, like these lovely people on screen, Join our Patreon. It starts from just £3 a month, but you can help us continue to drop these gems every Monday at 6 p.m. Also, we are still accepting your dilemmas. If you have any questions or queries for me or any other guests you see on the show, send them in to us at blackmillennialmoney.com. Click the contact page and we will be responding to those and sharing them on our YouTube channel. So if you're not subscribed to our YouTube, now is the time to do it if you want to see when your dilemmas get dropped. An extra special announcement, my book, my book, The Free Circles of Wealth, how, how kids from immigrant backgrounds and working class homes can get rich and stay that way is coming out soon. If you want to be one of the first people to get hold of one of those books, the link is in the description. Join the waiting list. It's coming out and you do not want to miss it. It's the sto- it basically breaks down how I've gone from someone who was £36,000 in debt to in three years later owning my own home, getting an incredible bag and actually being on the road to building significant amount of wealth. If that sounds like something you want to do, click the link in the description. Now, without further ado, we have our illustrious guest in the house, and you might have seen him on Instagram a little bit. You may have seen him around, but just in case you don't know the accolades, his name is Property by Kazi, a.k.a. Kazim Balogan. He has developed over £10 million worth of property. So that's his GDV, gross development value for the uninitiated. He flips at least five properties a year and runs the second biggest property Instagram page in the UK. And he's here to tell us how you can build a multi-million pound business from buying, renovating and flipping property. Kazim Balogan, how's it feel to be on Black Millennial Money today? I'm excited. I'm excited. I like the energy that you've come with. I'm going to feed off that and hopefully reciprocate that back to yourself and to, you know, the listeners. So I'm excited to be on. Now I'm excited. I've been waiting for this one. I've, I've had my eye on you for a little bit and I've been thinking he needs to be on the show. He doesn't know what he's missing out on. Black Millennial Money is where stars are made. So, but before we get into the real details and the nitty gritty of how we can flip, we want to get to know you a little bit better because... This guy makes seven figures a year flipping properties. He sounds a little bit intimidating. What are the three things we should know about you, Kazim? What's what's regular about you? Um, so downsides, you got started at downside. Um, unfortunately, I can't learn the words to any songs. Never been able to, apart from one, um, All Falls Down from College Dropout. Realised I could learn that. But apart from that, that's just never been a skill of mine. Um, I am. A self-proclaimed win connoisseur growing up in South London. You know, we grew up on chicken wings and I can tell you where to get the best wings anywhere in South London. Um, and if I wasn't a property developer, to be fair, even if I was, if somebody offered me the opportunity right now, I'd be a full-time gamer, streamer, catch me on Call of Duty Warzone. <laughs> There's a couple of controversial points in there. So 
Okay, okay. why is it All Falls Down is the only song that you know? Like, seriously, what's I, happening? I don't, I don't know, because I've tried to learn so many other songs. Like, I got close for a little while with Back, I Live Up To My Name, and I just forgot it again. And I've... I, like I proper listen to music and I can't remember words. Like I'll try it and I'm the person that's just getting. <laughs> okay, let's put this to the test. So if I say if you're talking the hardest, what comes next? Mm. He's actually think and you're from South. No, this I, is crazy. Yeah. But you know what? So I know, like I know for it I don't know if I want to put this down to dyslexia. Because I know like it's <laughs> gigs gigs better up like pop up in your thought. Is it as an artist? But like in terms of something, exactly yeah, what it is, I, I'm always <laughs> gonna be wrong. So if I'm trying to sing along, imagine trying to lip sync to a song. It's just gonna look like when wow. they did. It's gonna look like the you know what I mean the dub of Squid Games. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, one more, one more test, one more test. If I say Billie Jean, what comes next? That ah. Uh, but he says Billie Jean loads of times. She, she's not my lover. No? All right, cool. Okay, so, so you're not that bad. You're not that bad. No, but, I, <laughs> no, no, but this is what I'm saying. Like, no, that's the thing. Like, I'm the guy who's like, when they play, like, Dreams and Nightmares, like, Meat Mills, I just do the, yeah. you thought I was feeling it? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> like, I just do the end bit. I think if I was a rapper, I'd be the guy. <laughs> Okay, okay. So you're the short guy that rolls and busts the rhymes, and people are gonna finish me for not for not being able to remember his name. But you said chicken wings, chicken wing connoisseur. We also have someone on YouTube called the chicken connoisseur, but let's not talk about him. You said wings. I'm a wing guy, right? I'm from North London, right? So I don't know where lost. to get wings in South. What do you mean? Already? Lo- anyway, no. Let's not fall out over this. But where are the good places to get wings in South? Because if you just say Morley's, we're ending the podcast right now. No, because the thing is, is this is when this is when you become a connoisseur. It's not just all Morley's are the same. Like you can't just go to Morley's. It's they're not universally the same quality of wing. Like so, you've got your your top tier Morley's. So you've got your Brixton Morley's, the Crystal Palace Morley's. Like ironically, the Beckenham Morley's, barely South London, borderlands of Kent, but sensational Morley's over there. Like they're they're great places to get wings from. Then it just it depends what you want. Like you can vape, you know what I mean. Could branch out to your favorite chickens, and it's really random locations that there's great wings. Like the favorite chicken out in Caterham, like on the way to say if you're on the way to Gatwick Airport, late for a flight, stop there, six piece, you're perfect. Uh, you know what? You impressed me because I'll, if you had just said any Morley's, I, 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 I would listen. I've you would have buried yourself for on you this. For days. Pass through Sydney at any point. Yeah, um, Jerk Gardens. <laughs> Their wings, top tier. I'd recommend the flat ones only. And you know what I mean? But they're, they're sensational. Okay, so you'd be out here. You might want to start another YouTube channel because clearly <laughs> the chicken connoisseurs don't do it right. Uh, yeah. But before we get lost on food and whether or not you can rap, let's get into the property. So for, for most people listening to this, they're going to be thinking about how to develop their first property. So when it comes to how to approach it there's a myriad of development strategies right so if we if you could break this out as an expert someone who does this right you've done pretty much every strategy available in this space mm-hmm. what strategies should someone be looking at when it comes to getting into the development game for their first property so i think like developments are all about you know because you can kind of compartmentalize people into property investors 
and property developers. So if we kind of just isolate the word develop, like developers is transforming. You want to be adding value because, you know, there's a lot of property investors. And I think it's really important to like understand the difference between the two. As a, somebody who's buying a buy-to-let property, you're a property investor. Somebody's buying your buying a residential home for yourself, you're a property investor. But when you want to develop an asset, it's slightly different. Now, in terms of strategies that you could implement, there's, there's all sorts of different things. So you've got your straightforward refurbishments. That's just buying a property um, that's potentially in a rundown state, improving the condition. That doesn't have to be anything structural. It can be new kitchen, new bathroom, flooring, complete rip out, um, and you're adding value. And the reason that adds value a lot of the time is because when we're buying a property, it's all about our available capital. And if you're having to buy a rundown property, chances are you can't buy it on a conventional mortgage, um, which means you need more money for the deposit with, you know, probably a bridging finance and rather some short term source of finance. If you're buying it, um, also, you need the refurb money as well. So the works money. So that, you know, barrier to entry from a capital requirement means there's less people. And it's almost like basic supply and demand that you're buying something with less less eyes on it you're making it more attractive because by the time you finished it's ready for sale on the retail market to your end user so your owner occupier um so for that convenience you're getting paid a premium effectively the difference between what you bought it for what you spent on it your associated fees so stamp duty um finance costs and relative associated fees and you're adding value um, and that's pro like that's kind of you know the, the most fundamental way and the, the way that a lot, of, a lot of people know is okay this is how i'm going to develop property but there's so many other strategies um you know so there's conversions that can be an office to residential conversion it could be a residential to multiple dwellings that's buying a single unit and splitting into flats it could be a new build so that's ground up you're buying a site so a plot of land or something that needs to be demolished and building it could be a single home, it could be multiple units, it could be commercial, it could be anything, but you're developing ground up. Um, and then there's there's so many more. It could be lost space where you're buying the air above a property and developing and building up. And these are all kind of what you can and can't do is dependent on the, the necessary planning consents you'd have to seek from your local authority. Okay, so just so I understand this, because this is new to me as well, right? Uh, the first strategy is refurb. So when you're buying something that maybe, and you see this on Rightmove a lot, where it's like it needs modernization. Mm. So maybe it hasn't been redecorated since like the 80s or even mm. 1999 or something yes, like that. They're, they're the best you're going to buy that. Looking at properties, I say when you go in and you see like the pink bathroom suite or the green or the, the old wallpaper <laughs> or the shag carpets, you're like, this could be some money here. Yeah. So that's the first one, right? Where it's just old and you're bringing it right up to 2021. And that has a bunch of different costs associated with it. But there's a lot of potential money in this. And actually, a friend of mine did this in Peckham, actually, where she bought old council property that someone's parent, that someone's mum had passed away and left it to them and they weren't really looking okay. after it. And that was a great opportunity for her because I, I haven't said her name, so I can be a bit specific. But she put she bought it for about 250000 Mm -hmm. four bedroom place in Peckham because they wanted to get rid of it which is crazy right, and I'm right. talking this year she bought it <laughs> or was it 2020 she bought it and then by the time she finished renovating it it's worth six seven hundred thousand and that's what happens mm -hmm. when you can buy a those a place that need modernization presumably and then with a the redevelopment this is where you're mm -hmm. sort of changing it so is this yeah. a block of Just flat is this an office building that you're converting mm -hmm. Just to touch on what you said, I think something that's really important is 
you know, it's great to be able to buy a property for way under market value. Because realistically, if you bought something for 250, even if you put that in auction the next day, because of the potential uplift in value, so what it's worth at the end, the GDV, you could have still maybe made 150,000 and done nothing. But you make more money by spending money on it to create that end product. And there's some people that we kind of call property traders. They don't actually do any works. They will buy a deal, repackage it, whether that's just reset, like buying at a good price and selling it at a better price. Or, um, you know, adding value through planning and then like reselling it to either a developer or auction. Um, but I think it's really important to differentiate the difference between a property that you've seen that's, you know, undervalued. So what they call BMV, below market value properties that straight away have equity and have value in them. Or those properties where you're kind of buying it at market value, but by you're adding value through the works that you're doing. So that might be some potential in the property that somebody else has missed by reconfiguration, by adding an extension, additional rooms, particularly in London, where prices um, where property prices are a premium. Got it. Okay. So a, a key distinction there. It's one thing to buy something cheap and then sell it. It's another thing to buy something that may not necessarily have been cheap, but has potential. And that's where the the redevelopment value or the adding value piece comes to it. So whether that is the changing an office block, which a lot of places have done now into residential property or doing a loft conversion or some sort of extension, whether that's a single floor or double floor. And that redevelopment piece, like my place, I bought it and it hadn't been refurbed since 2001. So if we just do up the kitchen and bathroom, there's nothing, and change the windows from wooden windows to UPVC, is that would that be considered adding value? I mean, the reality is, and one of the most common phrases and a phrase that I live by is that you make the money when you buy. So whether that adds value depends on how much you paid for it. Because if you overpaid day one, it doesn't matter what you do to it. There's going to be a ceiling price within that given area. So just because you made something nicer doesn't make it more than what you paid for it. So it's always relative to what you paid for the property on day one. So yeah, that's a gem because I think we spoke about this when we were prepping. A lot of people like to buy property outside of London and because it's cheaper to get involved. But if you then go and put an extension on a property, that doesn't mean you're going to get more money for it because that area, they just have a ceiling price, right? Yeah, I mean, whether it's out of London, in like, it doesn't matter. But the, the important point that is that you know you have to do your numbers like my background is it's not really finance but it is numbers in terms of like my educational background so when i'm looking at deals i don't look at it exactly on how nice can i make the property once a deal stacks then my my goal is how nice can i make this property but i'm not even going to get to that stage if the numbers don't stack which is why it's always really important to work out okay what am i paying for the property or actually or you can even work it backwards like so what's the property going to be worth at the end how much do I have to spend to get the property from where it is now to how I want it to look at the end? What are my associated fees going to be? So that's, you know, your stamp duty, finance costs, et cetera. And then how much profit do I want to make? And working it backwards like that, you can then work out, okay, so then I now know what I can offer for this deal to be viable to me. Got it. Got it. Okay. That kind of answers my next question, which is great. But just to wrap up the previous point, if we're looking at refurbs, those would it be safe to say that mostly a standard refurb doesn't require planning permission, whereas a redevelopment typically would? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so a standard refurb generally, 
because a refurb, I mean, you know, could you could put extensions under there's there's what we call like permitted development rights. And different types of properties have different permitted development rights. So I you can do a lot more on a detached property than you could do to a flat. Um and so for example, you could have like a certain meter extension that you could do under PD, which means it's not technically full planning, but you just have to get it, you know, you still have to go for the approval. Um, but what you will have is building control regardless. So if you are making considerable changes to the property, you've got to be compliant with current building regulations in both instances. Got it. And then the last one is new development where there wasn't a property on the site, or even if the property was previously demolished, you're actually going to build something brand new from the ground up. And when my next question was going to be what makes a good development property and you've answered it firstly by saying the numbers need to make sense because this is an investment after all this is business we're in right so if numbers don't add up that's the first box to tick but something else that maybe might get overlooked is whether or not the property fits with your style of strategy could you expand on that a bit more well i mean it it depends how capital intensive you want to be what your timelines are how quickly you want to return on investment, what the exits look like. Um, because it, when you get into property or any business, location, like some people are getting into business for their exit. Like how much money can I make within a short space of time? Some people are looking at it if like from a more residual income, like I want a passive income over a long term. Um, but for me, one of the reasons that determines the type of properties that I look at or development sites that I look at realistically is kind of just specializing in a, in a specific area um just trying to really work out what strategy works for me because you know effectively if you're trying to do little bits of everything you can become like a jack of all trades and a master of none and being like efficient in one specific vocation means that if you're looking at deals it's a lot easier to appraise them in a short space of time so you can look at a lot more a lot more efficiently i think an interesting point to pull out of that is for anyone who wants to get into property development, there are levels to it, right? There's a difference between a, a renovating a single family home and then going to try and buy a 24,000 square foot office block and turn that into a series of flats. And this is where your team and your cash and capacity comes into it because you may have the best builders for renovating a four bedroom house, for example. But when it comes to changing a commercial property into six different flats that that might be a whole different ball game for them and they may never have done that before so there may be other things that limit your ability to take on certain projects and for example my sister's an architect she would be a great person to take on properties who require planning permission because she spent her career getting other people through planning permission so even if that was just where she was going to specialize because she understands that system that makes a that makes a lot of sense for her it may not necessarily make sense for her to then start trying to build a, a b&b for example or a pub or to renovate that kind of thing even though she still has the plan and permission expertise it may just be easier to do it for actually i spent my career helping other people get extensions and loft conversions I could actually just really do that and get really, really, and continue to be really, really good at that. And it'll be easier for me to make money that way. Yeah, I think for, for me, a lot of the time when I look at it, like a lot of different people have different strategies and it's great to kind of want to aim really big and do as much as possible. And I'd be an advocate for always like, you know, always pushing the boundaries and pushing the barriers. But you also got to think that property investment or any investment, 
well, for me anyway, I'm looking at my return on investment. And sometimes when you become really good at something, your return, um, you know, in terms of your, when you annualize your return, may be just as good doing three smaller projects or four or five smaller projects than one big project. And if you've built a skill set, like you said, built a team, built an element of expertise, then you have to work out the risk and reward and what you're going to get from taking additional risk, because it is when you're branching out into something else. And is the return that you're going to get from doing something slightly different, is it going to be worthwhile? That's, and I can give two examples of that kind of thing, right? Maybe your team of builders are really good at renovating properties that have been fire damaged. So this place has been burnt to shreds and they're really good at taking on those kind of properties because there's a lot of people that will say this place has been burnt. I don't want to touch it. But that's a huge opportunity for you who knows how to turn it around quickly. And the same thing with my sister, who who's an architect and knows how to get people through planning. Someone else, it might take them 10 weeks to get through planning, but she could actually probably get through it in four weeks because she knows the system better. And that means that when, if she needs a bridging loan, it's going to be much cheaper for her to access that finance in four weeks, as opposed to someone else in 10 weeks. And the difference in interest could actually determine how profit, why it will have an impact on how profitable this deal would be. But that actually means maybe she could add a little bit more value to the property, which could have an exponential difference on it. Or, so, Or even just I think, who secures I the think deal. What's come, because if two people yeah. are at auction, for example... And your numbers say that you've got a finance cost of 10,000 and somebody else has got a finance cost of 20,000. Technically, you both should, if you've done your numbers right, have the same GDV if you've got the same plan in place. But if I can do it for 10,000 pounds cheaper, I could go 10,000 pounds higher on my bid and win the property. There you go. And when you specialize, you know that going in, right? You know, because... I'm sure for you, Kazim, at this point, it's got to a point where you can look at a property, you kind of think, I know how much that's going to cost me to turn it around. Yeah, like there's, you know, I don't, but there's, there's a lot of properties that I'd look at online. I see the, the you know, the viewing day. There can't be that much wrong with it. I'm not going to go and view that. And I'll just kind of, I still go and I still buy like auctions. And obviously that's not something I'm advocating, but it comes from that element of experience and specialization. Okay, I know an area, I know that type of property. And even all things considered, if X, Y, or Z is wrong, because I can cover my bases through my experience, through my team, be that the architect, the solicitor that's going to review the legal plaque and do a pre-auction review of that, that, you know, I'm happy with everything else that could potentially come up within within the property. Okay, so we so we've we've kind of gone deep on what are the good things you should be looking for, but what are the bad? What things can make a bad development property? And if I remember rightly, you said something about risk. Yeah, so you know, risk, risk and return for me is like is the principle of investment. Like, if you're gonna do something that has a higher risk ratio, you should have a higher return ratio. And I think a lot of people that start out in property. Because particularly right now in the current market, we're in like not a full boom, but the, the market is buoyant. It's a seller's market that, you know, property prices are going quite high, whether that's on the open market, uh, you know, residential, I mean, sorry, at auctions, um, you know, through sources, they're charging an arm and a leg for fees for a good deal because they're few and far between. So people are, you know, they're, they're overpaying and overpaying for stuff when the risk is too high. And really, you've got to like, look, if, 
you know, in, in the industry, we have like kind of maybe sort of standard returns that people would say, okay, for me to do something that's a straightforward flip. So when I'm buying, adding value and selling, I want a 25% return. But if I've got to wait for planning, that planning is not a guarantee. So I want a 35% return. And I think people should look at deals like that, that if there is an additional element of risk, you should get an additional, you know, there should be more return for you. So a lot of people's first investment property is their own home. And I think that's a great way to invest because you've got lower barriers to entry on capital because you can use the 5, 10, 15% deposits, which are way lower than if it was an investment property. You've also, you've, you've got more time because you're going to be living in the property. It's, it's a trade-off in that it's not just an extra expense because it's your home, but you can still improve it in the same way. Um, and that's obviously a mitigated risk of way of, like, of investing in property. Um, and your the money you've put in would also be less. So you would maybe look at a property that you're going to renovate for yourself on the view that, you know, it's not my forever home. I'm going to have it for a couple of years, but I want to add value. You could do that for a way lower return on your investment because your risk is also way lower. Got it. Got it. And I think this, from what you're saying, this is the type of thing that you need to have your sort of risk framework set beforehand. So mm-hmm. if you want to be making 25% on your deals, you need to be doing that. You need to have that in mind before you start looking at properties, because I'm sure there's people out there who will try and make a property fit and it won't. And then they'll lose yeah. money. And that, that's one of the most common mistakes that people make um, because we make money and then like, we you know property is it's a tangible investment we can touch it 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 see you know it seems very safe because it's you know you can physically touch your house like you can go and tap it these are my bricks i own them like it's mine you know so we understand it a lot more but one of the downsides of that because it's so popular that you know people are, are very eager to get into property which is great, but I think the understanding does need to come first and not put the cart before the horse because, you know, I gave that example earlier of how you work out your numbers and working it backwards, so work your GDV, but your GDV, I always like stress test deals. So what if build cost goes up by 5%? What if property prices drop by 5%? And does it still work? And you need to kind of understand that, are you happy with that level of exposure to risk? Also, you can't massage a deal and be like, you know, because you, I've seen people do it. They'll do the numbers and they'll put their refurb at 70K and they'll realize they're only going to make 20K profit. That's maybe not enough for them. So they'll be like, oh, I could probably do it for 45 though, so that they can say the deal makes 45,000. But realistically, they've massaged the numbers to try and make the deal make sense on paper when it doesn't. Yeah. And that's really, really interesting. And isn't it? I think the risk element is so crucial because again people don't see property as business because if you were approaching if you were selling vegetables you would be you would be looking at how much am i going to pay for this thing how long is it going to last on the shelf how much money am i going to lose for wastage and then does it still make sense for me to buy this thing right if i was selling pears and apples but because it's a building it sort of feels like I'm a property investor. I'm not a business owner. And I think people, a lot of people got to wake up in COVID where actually you really are a business owner. And if your tenants can't pay your rent, that's the risk you needed to factor in. Now, talking about rookie errors, I'm going to fire a couple at you. And if you can give me some quick fire responses to these. So rookie error, number one, renovating the property to your taste standards. What's the problem with that? 
your taste standards, you know, you become, you can easily become an artist. You put what you want out there, but you've got to think about your end user. Who's going to buy the property? You're not everybody. So you have to go more general. You can't maybe go for that massive feature wall. You kind of have to keep the colors more neutral and allow people to put their own touch on the property because for every person you marginalize, that's reducing the demand for your property and reduce demand, reduce, reduce price. Got it. So overspending, what's the rookie error about that? And this one sounds most obvious, but but if you can break it down to how this really can mess things up. I think with overspending, like it, it's obvious, obviously, if you overspend, you lose money. However, overspending is, is dangerous for two reasons. Sometimes people just assume, oh, if I put nicer tiles in, I'm going to get more money. But areas have a ceiling price. So in an area where flats sell for 200,000, you can't put in 80 pounds a square meter tiles in the bathroom. You're not going to get a pound for pound return. Same with, it could look amazing with a rear extension, but it might not be worth it. Maybe a new kitchen and bathroom is a better use of your money, better return, because you've, you've already kind of hit the ceiling price of that area. Got it. Now, compliance and regulations. Mm. Rookie errors around this one. <sighs> I think it's just just understanding it. Um, you know, when you buy a property, you've got a bit of time when you're going through the conveyancing process to obviously do your due diligence and understand what you need to do. Now, if you want to convert a house into flats, there's, you know, minimum space standards. So if you, you can't buy a building that's not going to meet the planning requirements, so it's not going to be compliant and you're going to get your planning rejected. Same as if you were planning to do a massive extension because you think that's what was going to add the value. And it just wasn't realistic within, you know, the um, the development plan of the, you know, the local authority you were working within. So I think really understanding, and if you don't understand, engaging with an expert who does. Got it. All right. So those are some of the rookie errors to avoid. And just to wrap up this half of the episode, I just want to summarize a couple of key points here. Now, there's generally three. The three types of development strategy you have refurbs where you're just renovating a property internally generally speaking you don't need planning permission although there may be some things that you can do that are a little bit beyond just putting in a new bathroom and a fresh coat of paint now the redevelopment side of things is where you're actually maybe stripping out everything getting planning permission deciding to put a loft conversion in or some sort of extension or maybe changing the use of the building where it was an office block before and now you want to make it into a a block of flats, for example. And then you have ground up development. So these are new developments where maybe there used to be a building there, but that's been demolished. Or this could have been a piece of abandoned land. And now you're building something from the ground up to now selling the open market. Those are, the, those are broadly the three strategies. And then a couple of things that make properties stand out. Number one, the numbers need to make sense. If the numbers don't make sense, it's not an investment. Remember, you're in business. Property investments are somehow to some people has got this reputation of not being like any other business. If the numbers don't make sense, if you're not going to be profitable, it's a bad deal. Now, the other thing to tie into that is your risk level. What is the return on investment you want? So if you want to make 25%, 10%, 40% return on your money, so you spend 100,000, for example, and you want to make back 40,000. So total, you've got 140,000, a 40% return. That's nice, but don't make the deal into something that's not. You can't. You may. You may find yourself redeveloping a property that doesn't actually make sense. Now, once you've looked at all of these rookie errors, looked at the strategies in place. One of the, I heard this on another podcast. One of the things you really want to avoid is making money doing the wrong thing. 
So if you end up doing the wrong thing and make money, it fills you with a false sense of confidence. You can end up actually believing that you know what you're doing and making an even bigger mistake. So for example, if you're someone who redevelops a property and you never actually read through the regulations or you bought a property without ever going to visit it, that was kind of lucky, but those aren't the things that you're supposed to be doing, right? So understanding those are the key things when it comes to buying your first development property. In the second half of this episode, Kazi's going to be breaking down how to make money from flips. So once you've developed a property, how do you actually start to make money from this thing? Or even beforehand, before you developed it, what are the ways you can make money from developing this property? Stay tuned and we'll see you after the break. You may not know this, but we have a Patreon page. Patreon is a platform that makes it super easy for people to support creators. Here at Black Millennial Money, our mission is to reach millions of people around the world with life-changing financial information, and you can be part of that. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Black Millennial Money or click the link in the description to sign up and start supporting us today. We are back on this episode of Black Millennial Money where we're talking about how you can make seven figures a year developing and flipping properties. We have Property by Kazi on the show, aka Kazim Balogan, and we are talking specifically about making money from flips in this half of the episode. The first half was all about the things you need to know when it comes to developing a property. This is all about the flip process itself. So starting off, Kazi, what are some of the strategies that people can use to start flipping properties? And I think if I remember right, the first thing you said was about distressed properties. So let's start there. Yes, I guess the dis- distressed properties or distressed those effectively means, you know, maybe somebody who needs for whatever reason to sell a property quickly. Now, if somebody needs to sell something quickly and they're a motivated seller, potentially, you can secure a property for, again, below market value. Now, below market value deals are a lot more common in a downwards market because there's a lot more people that want to sell properties you know for for a lower price you need to consider obviously if the market is downwards then potentially continue with that trend and make sure that you stress test your deal accordingly but realistically it's very you know it's the basic premise of business buy low sell high if you can do that then you're going to make money because you buy the property low even with you know minimal or, or works if you need to you know that you can sell them for more and make money and that's what what we're in property for and what we do with flips you know we buy them for a short space of time resell them for more money okay and that's kind of the dream where you find something that's really cheap you don't really need to do a great deal to it and you can immediately make money on it right um but not not all deals are like that so i guess yeah you're probably gonna find more few and far between um you know that they're the below market value is when you see a lot of, you know, courses or you see loads of people out there and people spend thousands on Facebook ads and different ads saying, look, you know, we buy it. You, like there's the equivalent of we buy any car, there's we buy any house. And it's the same principle that look, the, we put out that we're happy to buy anything at the right price. If you need a quick sale, they'll facilitate that. And obviously you can on a, on a smaller scale replicate that model. But generally speaking, um, it's about, being able to add value to a property as opposed to just buying it you know that's a more sustainable sustainable um you know strategy to implement and that leads nicely onto the second sort of flip strategy where you're looking at convertible properties talk us through that particularly around a planning permission 
So um, when we're looking at properties for, well, when we talk about conversion adding value, I'll touch briefly that, you know, it can be maybe not full planning, but it could be even like in a flat where you bought a one bedroom flat and it had a poor layout by changing the layout of the property, maybe making an open plan kitchen living room, maybe moving a bathroom that was previously through the kitchen and undesirable layout, or maybe, you know, you move things around so you can turn a one bed into a two bed. Now, all of these things are going to increase the value of the property. Now, that being said, ideally, you want to do that with a property that was in a bad condition to start with, because you don't want to pay a premium for a really nice property and have to rip everything out and do it again, because it's almost counterproductive unless the price, the purchase price is really good. But by doing that, you can add a considerable amount of value. When doing that, generally speaking, it wouldn't be planning. But what you would need is building control. For what you're doing so make sure everything's compliant with current building regulations and secondly for leasehold properties you're going to need freeholder consent so you have to approach your freeholder freeholder let them know what your plans are and then they would give you a consent there could be relevant fees attached to this they may want to send out their own surveyor and um, review your plans to make sure that they're not going to cause destruction within the current layout of the building um, but it is a good strategy that you, you can implement away from that you've got sorry go on there was one thing you mentioned in there where you mentioned leaseholder properties. Now, do leaseholds only apply to flats or can you find a house, for example, where you still need to speak to the freeholder to get permission? There, there are, um, so there are like, not so much in London, um, but there are like leasehold houses that they're, they're, they're a lot more uncommon. You've got some stuff with like flying freeholds where, it's a house, but part of the house is across somebody else's land and they're a bit more complex um, and there's, there's different regulation, but effectively your solicitor, like during the conveyancing process, should kind of, not directly, but if, if it is one of these properties that's slightly more complex in terms of, you know, how, how the title deeds are drawn up, that they should, you know, inform you of the impact of those because a lot of those properties with flying freeholds, you know, there's less lenders that will lend on them. So it could potentially reduce your resale value as well. It's reasonable things that you should consider, but which is one of the reasons why you see this phrase thrown around a lot, which is like building your dream team, um, which is like all of the skill sets that you need to be able to operate well within this field. So whether it's architect, solicitor, planning consultant, builder, accountants, etc., everybody that's going to have an individual skill set is going to add value to your business. Got it. Now, I think you are moving on to adding value, but we touched on adding value a little bit when it came to developments. But the key thing I want you to talk about here is the pound for pound value of adding the, of adding value to start off with, whether that's a conversion, an extension, or just even changing the layout. How is pound for pound value important to your strategy? I mean, that's that's super important because, you know, for every pound that you spend, capital will hopefully, you know, for everyone it won't be forever but it's finite you have a certain amount of capital so for every pound you spend you need to be getting a return on that like it's a return on investment the same way as if you were you know investing in cryptocurrency or stocks or shares you want to see what your return is going to be from investing that and you want it to be positive and the thing about property is and we touched on this when we spoke about adding value in like one of the earlier questions sometimes you can make a house amazing and it doesn't make it any more valuable um, and the difference is if you look at, for example, build costs, they don't really differentiate that much across the UK. 
maybe slightly, but you know, it costs pretty much the same amount to do a loft conversion as it does in London, as it will in Barnsley. But if the GDV of the product is going to be way less, but the works cost exactly the same, a lot of the time, you're not, got, not going to get value out of completing those works, which is one reason why you'll see loads of luxury basements are pretty much only in central London zone one, because it costs way more money to go down than it does to go up. So you have to get be in an area where you're going to get a return on that investment. I see. And you've used a couple of acronyms in there. I just want to, I want to try and define them to see if I've learned anything in this episode, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. So firstly, it's not an acronym, but capital is essentially the money that you have available to spend. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You're the economist correct. here. So I just yeah. want to, just want to yeah, make yeah. sure. I'm, I'm and then, um, <laughs> I appreciate that. And GDV is, it stands for gross domestic value, but essentially, development gross domestic value gross development value too far in the economics but a gross development value is essentially what you believe the property will be worth once you've actually finished the renovations or the works that you plan to do to it so in the context of what you just said your gdv your gross development value if you for example use Barnsley and we'll use Beckton, right? Beckton in East London, Barnsley in the north of the country. If two houses, you buy them both for 100000 and it's going to cost you 25000 to renovate them and get them up to the standard for which you'll be comfortable selling them at, in Barnsley, your gross de development value could only actually be 150000 because, yeah, you added 25000 worth of value to it, but it hasn't actually you spent twenty five thousand developing it, but it hasn't actually added too much more value. Whereas you spend twenty five thousand on a place in Beckton that's cost a hundred thousand, this may actually end up being worth a three hundred thousand. And essentially what you're saying is development costs don't really shift that much, but the value of doing the development is what changes based on where you're doing the on where you are in a country or even the type of property you're looking at, correct? Pretty much like, so I think it's it's not solely where you are, but also I think the kind of, the, the key part is, you know, like what you paid for it and what it's going to be worth. Because that example of, you know, if you bought a property in, I think even if you switch the numbers around, said so you bought a property in Barnsley for 100,000 and spent 25,000, it could only be worth 110,000 after you're doing all those works because you haven't actually added any value. Somebody isn't going to pay that much more for it. Whereas you could look at something that you bought in Beckton for 300000 and you spent 25000 and then it was worth three fifty. Now, none of those numbers are amazing, but one is still adding value. Um, and you could have done the exact same works to the exact same property. So really, it kind of goes back to, okay, firstly, did you buy at the right price? Because there's nothing wrong with spending 25000 on the property in Barnsley if you bought it for 75000 for example. But it... You know, and, and the same with the Betton property. If you overpaid for that property, there's not there could be something wrong with twenty being spending twenty five thousand on that property because you're not adding that value. So either you've got your purchase price wrong to start with, or you've got your GDV wrong, but you've got your numbers wrong somewhere. So which is why we always go back to what do the numbers say, being able to do accurate comparisons to what it's realistically likely to sell for to determine your GDV, to accurately assess your bill costs, and that could be from getting a quotation sort of attended to works um and then what we talked about from a kind of compliance we headlined it as um to make sure that your plans are viable with the property that you purchased 
Oh, you just teed me up perfectly for the next question. So when it comes to profiting from flips, some of the key skills and some of the key skills you need to have to make sure that you're actually going to make money from this rather than spend your time beautifying a house that's not going to make you any money. One of the first things you mentioned was deal analysis. Let's go mm-hmm. deep on deal analysis. Uh, deal analysis is like is like one of my favorite things. Like deal analysis is because that is where for me money is made. Go back to that. I say it again. I literally say it anytime anyone gives me the opportunity to speak, you make the money when you buy it. But you don't make the money just because you bought a house. You buy it because you make the money because you bought at the right price. Now, myself and Joseph would go for and go and see the same property. Um, but and he could have he could say, I'm not spending more than a hundred thousand. But because of the numbers that I've done, maybe, like I said, they're both a one-bedroom flat, but I know how I can reconfigure that to a two-bedroom flat, how I'm going to refurb at a reasonable cost. I know what I can spend on that property. And maybe I can spend 10000 more because my GDV is £50,000 higher than, than Joseph's, for example. But deal analysis is really key. And to get that right, you can kind of break it down individual individual areas so you've got to get your what your gross development value is what the property or what the development site is going to be worth at the end right um, and there's different ways you can you can you can sort of ascertain this but if we're looking at more simplistic in terms of maybe it's just a house or a flat um, you know your comparisons are going to be your best bet so you can look at your historical data on you know your zooplas and right moves what neighboring properties are sold for recently what similar properties on the road or within like in london i do a quarter of a mile um when populations are less dense you might have to go a little bit further out but working out what an accurate comparison is and and i think one also key thing when it gets to deal analysis and comparisons are really understanding your area because you know me and joseph spoke off camera and I, I was talking about only operating in south london and it's not for any reason other than i know the area really well so I know which which roads are in the right catchment area for the right school, which means somebody's going to spend an extra hundred thousand because I know that area. I know why one flat is worth five hundred fifty thousand, and another flat within that same quarter of a mile radius looks pretty similar is only worth three seven five. But if you get that wrong, then you could easily be comping your property completely wrong. So we look at the type of property, its proximity to amenities like stations, et cetera, um, the condition of the property, and then also like its its amenities. So it's garden, driveway or street parking, et cetera, and things like that to get the comparisons right to start with. So there's a lot of homework that goes into it. It's not just, oh, yeah, I've got some builders who can do good work. It's actually, even before I go anywhere near buying this thing, let's do some research and make sure this is a deal that the numbers really make sense. Let's actually find a way of convincing myself to leave my house, essentially, right? It needs to be a good enough deal for me to be bothered to get out of the house because otherwise I may as well stay home. Yeah. And I think understanding what a good deal is, like getting it right, because some stuff looks great. Loads of sources will tell you this is great, but it needs to be great for you, not just because somebody told you that it's good. Yeah. Do your own research. That's the sum. It's in the disclaimer on this episode. It's always do your own research and it applies to every sort of investment and business opportunity. The other key skill that, that we mentioned earlier was being able to raise the money. Talk to me about why this is important. Because property, you know, there are high barriers to entry in property that, you know, unfortunately, and the, the, the main one um, is, is, re- is realistically capital. 
you know, people are going to lend you money, but they're going to lend you on the basis that you have mitigated their risk by putting your own money in first. So that ranges from, you know, 5% on a um, help to buy scheme up to sort of 35, 40% maybe on a bridging loan. I mean, it can be way less, but just as a sort of as a max of maybe what a requirement would be depending on the site. Um, but you're going to have to have capital to buy a property in most instances, like 99% of the time you require capital. Now, it doesn't have to be your own, but you have to be able to raise it. So in raising capital, you can first look at leveraging your own capital. If you've got your own money, then you're going to leverage that by getting a mortgage or getting a bridging loan, um, that would be that mortgage residential or buy to let, but you're going to borrow from the bank. Now, your personal credit is going to be super important there. One, to give you access to finance and access to capital. And two, because of the rate that you're going to borrow at. And that's important because the rate, the cost of finance can determine whether or not a deal is viable. When you're doing development sites and using short-term finance, you know, bridging loans can range between, you know, depending on your loan to value, 0.5% if you've got a 50% LTV. If you're deemed a sort of high risk, maybe 1.3%. And that's not a year, that's a month. So if you're borrowing, you know, if you're borrowing a significant sum of money, 1.3% a month is, is, is a lot of money that you're going to, going to be paying on that. If you're borrowing 300,000, 300,000, then, you know, potentially you're paying close to £4,000 a month. By the time you, you take that over a 12-month period, it's going to cost a lot. And that's just 4000 in interest. That's not even the principal payments, is it? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's just interest. That's just a service to loans. That's just a cost of finance because a bridging loan is short term. You've got to pay the principal sum back in full at the end of the term. Um, so the reason I referenced them out, like imagine that's 54000 but to somebody else, it could be 26000 that could be the difference in whether or not you get the deal or they get the deal or whether or not the deal is viable in the first place. Mm. And that's that's a really interesting point where we're talking about all the things that you need to consider in the first half where it was about how you develop the property and you were talking about if the property sells for 10% less or 5% more and all of these different things. What and you see on you see on homes under the hammer all the time where someone either can't get free planning permission on time or it rains and they can't do the development that they need something goes wrong and they end up needing to get bridging finance for one or two more months and that costs them a lot of money and essentially makes it a bad deal but you can sort of factor that in so if my if my cost of Using Kaz's example, if you're going to have to pay four thousand a month in interest because you're borrowing like three hundred k in bridging finance, if that if you're anticipating it'll be one month where you need to do that, what happens if it turns into four months? Is this still still profitable? And at what point do you know that you're you need to get it down to a science where you know that actually at two months and three weeks I'm no longer profitable on this deal, so I'm I can I can run that far. Or am I or am I overdoing it, Kazi? Because I'm thinking budgeting, I'm thinking well, saying on top is, of the numbers. In, in most cases, a lot of the term, you know, because of the way property works with lenders' requirements of like, you know, you needing to own a property for six months before them relending on it on a considerable uplifting value. A lot of the time you're gonna be in the deal with the bridges, maybe for that six months period. But for me, again, I think that's where you know, you buying the property, doing the work, selling it straight away, all of these things, your conveyancing process takes time, your bill cost takes time, your planning takes time, and all of these things are what ifs. So by the time you factor in all these what ifs, 
ideal scenario is going to take six months, but realistically, it will take anywhere from six to 12. Now, I'm always factoring in my um, cost of finance at the 12 months. So if it's less, you know, I just save money and make more money. But I've kind of risk assessed my deal and made sure that it makes sense because, you know, when you you spoke on something that I think was really important earlier, which was almost making money the wrong way. Like it's great to make money by being super efficient, everything going exactly to plan, but that's maybe not that sustainable. Like it's great to make money because your bill cost came in lower, but maybe it's because you're a builder. And in, in actual fact, maybe if you're making all your money from your bill cost coming in really low, maybe you should be a builder because that's your skill set. Because if you're not making money from investing your capital, you should have an additional return on top of saving the money from the bill cost. So I think it's just about efficiencies a lot of the time. Got it, got it. So we touched on budgeting a little bit there. Why is that such a key skill? And I think this is really going to tie into that overspending point and um, maybe not spending to your taste all of the time. Yeah, budgeting is really important. You know, like it's, if I think now, as I understand it, not to show my age, but I'm pretty sure like business studies is, is taught kind of, it's getting taught from an earlier and earlier age. And one of the first things you kind of get taught about in business is cash flow forecasting. And that is kind of what we're talking about in in budgeting as well, because it's not just budgeting how much you spend, but also when you spend it. And do you have all the money up front? Do you have income coming through that you need to pay and understand when and how you need to pay for things? I think is written a really important element of the budgeting. So budgeting. So doing those projections for your build and working out when you're going to need money and how much. And, you know, if there's delays, could you need money at different times? That's important. Also, I always break down if I'm doing, let's say, for example, I'm going to refurb a house and give or take. I've said, OK, it's going to cost £80,000, £100,000 to refurb this house. But I'm also going to break down that into specific elements um, of where I'm going to spend money. So if I've got, you know, a head build team, then, you know, what is my... What is my labor cost? What are my material costs? What are my professional fees? And, you know, not because it's very easy to just run away with things at the beginning because, oh, the build's going really well. Everything's running smoothly and just be spending, spending money, but without realizing you're overspending. So I think definitely assigning a budget, spending on the things that you've, you know, you've allowed for. There's always going to be slight movement. You might say, okay, you know what? I think we can spend a little bit more on the bathroom because the market's moved and a better bathroom is going to increase our end value. But again, it's that pound for pound return. If you are going to overspend, are you overspending for the sake of it or to actually better your return on investment? Makes sense. Makes sense. Are you overspending for a good reason? And you mentioned a couple of times they're needing more money. And one of the key things to needing more money is credit. Because correct me if I'm wrong, your business doesn't function unless you have credit, right? Um, and that could be credit from investors or credit from the likes of Experian or Equifax. So talk to us about how it impacts your business and, and the key ways that the listeners really need to stay on top of their credit, whether that's with people or with uh, credit agencies. Yeah, with, with both, they're like the principle behind it is exactly the same in terms of your, your personal credit or your your credit with, with individuals. Um, firstly like you know the ability to raise money is 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 you know paramount in property because you need money to make money secondly how much you pay for that money is paramount because it determines how competitive you are and therefore how 
proactive you can be in an industry. Um, so in terms of staying on top of it, you know, when you're buying one property or two properties, but just that's now multiple bills, more direct debits, more outgoings. Have you made sure that you've given a, um, a billing address for every property? Because you don't want bills piling up. Your builders are just going to, I don't know, use them to wipe their boots on. And then that's your EDF bill gone. You lose your EDF bill for three months. You've now got late payments or non-payments. That's going to impact the ability for you to borrow. I had an EDF bill or a bill. I don't know if it was a BDF. I don't want to blame them. But I had a bill um, that I didn't pay. I didn't realize it got sent to the wrong place. That basically, I think I was borrowing on a property upwards of, you know, half a million pounds. The impact of that bill, if I was between being able to get a product for somebody with great credit versus somebody with poor credit was hundreds of pounds a month. Now, that was a fixed product for five years. When you add up hundreds of pounds a month over a five-year term, that's tens of thousands of pounds that that, you know, that negligible bill of 30-something pounds could have cost me. Um, so which is one of the really important things to stay on top of, like, you know, all of the small things, because the small things can end up being big problems. Personal relationships and your personal credit. Um, integrity for me in business is is, you know, is one of like is one of the cornerstones of my business. Like, you know, it's all about um, you know, under promising and over delivering. And you've got to build relationships with people. Like property investment is a people business. Like if you want to keep getting good deals, you need to have good relationship with agents. If you say you're going to do something, you need to be able to do it. If you're going to put an offer forward and you're going to want that accepted, if you've messed them around in the past, that's going to impact your credit. And that's going to mean that they're less likely to take your offer seriously. So you have a personal credit with all of the you know stakeholders within your business. Hmm. It's interesting when we look at credit through that lens, because whenever I'm explaining credit, it's all about relationship. Um, so relationships, yes, but reputation specifically, because if you've got a bad credit score, what that says about you is that your name ain't good for, for paying your bills on time or for paying people back at all. Now, if you're getting into the property development and flipping space, ultimately, your name needs to be good with your banks with your energy companies with your phone company but also with your builders because you could have a great team of builders but if all their payments are late they're not going to work with you anymore or if you decide to use other people's money which is so glamorized when you hear these people selling their courses right i did it with opm other people's money if you take a hundred thousand even even two grand from somebody two thousand pounds from somebody and they don't see their money back Yes, they were willing to risk it, which is why they gave it to you. But your reputation is massively affected. And that's your personal credit. Because sometimes the bank, and Kazi, and Kaz, I'm sure you can say this, you've gone to a bank and they may not have been ready to give you money, but you picked up your phone and said, actually, I need 50 grand. And someone's given it to you, right? 100%. Like early but on, that's because your um, personal credit's good. Yeah, early on in my journey, I raised like, you know, seven figures worth of private equity finance, um, all of which was returned. I haven't raised private equity sort of I think in the last five years um but in that in that beginning period even before me raising you know like a million plus I was offered by a sole investor two million but my thought process was look I'm not ready to scale and to do what you want me to do with that money and so I would rather maintain that relationship going forward so sometimes like that integrity of knowing when to say no is you know is, is paramount as well because 
that's somebody that I still have a relationship with to this day. And if there was an issue with finance, I know that I can still call them and be like, look, I've got an opportunity for you. This is what it is. And you have that access to money. So I think personal relationship credit is, you know, is just as and sometimes even more important than your credit, like your what we more conventionally define as credit. Mm. So credit is one of the things that can really scale your business when it comes to flipping properties. The other thing is about building a team. And I remember you talking about this when we were prepping and it was really about duplicating yourself. Talk to me about the value of duplicating yourself, especially as someone who does four to five flips a year. These projects can last six to 12 months. You can't do all of that by yourself, obviously. Yeah, so with without a team and, and for a long time, I think particularly in this this generation of entrepreneur, entrepreneur often like translates to me, like I do stuff. But I think realistically for growth, it needs to be we and us and, and my team. Because if, you know, I'm doing everything, the business only has the capacity and the potential of however good I am. And I can keep homing my skill set, but there's only a certain number of hours in a day. Also, like specialization means that you can't be the best at everything. It's just not realistic. And even if you are, it's still way more efficient to be, you're going to be better at one of those things than the other five, for example. So if you spend like, so for me personally, that like, I know like deal sourcing and deal appraisal is like where my skill set's at. Like when people look, when they open my spreadsheet, they say, how do you do that? So that's, that's because that's what I focus on. But I'm able to focus on that now because you know like I have a good build team like I don't need to be able to fully understand the planning because I've got a planning consultant an architect that you know I trust and once I say look if they say it's good I, I don't even have to look it I'm like look they they say it's good um, and that's same with everybody around you like key people we touched on them earlier but your legal team um, your build team is really key project managers if you need them QSs, etc but whatever it is for the, the sort of the level of development that you're doing they don't have to be employed by you but they have to be people that you have at, at your disposal to be able to um you know to draw on their skill set hmm. and that 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 first point you said about entrepreneur sounding real like or just the one person and uh, I feel like it's got really glamorized because Steve Jobs was an an incredible person, right? Elon Musk seems like an incredible person today. But everything those people do, like, do you think Steve Jobs was really there building each iPad by himself? Or or Elon Musk is is literally designing every Tesla? That's not how it works. But a key key word is the cult of that one person. But it's visionaries. Like, you have a vision. And then you are a visionary because the people around you are creating your vision, but they're doing it for you or with you and you steer the ship, but it doesn't mean that you're there, you know, like oiling, oiling, oiling the engine. Yeah, exactly that. Now, I'm mindful that we've gone really heavy in this episode. There's been a lot of good information we shared. It's been... It's been detailed for people who are ready for the information, but I, can, I, I want to introduce a little bit of a, a bit more of a sexy topic because we, we started this talking about seven figures. And as someone who does that a year in property in flips, now, how fast can you grow when it comes to flipping properties? And I remember you had a story about Sydney. Can you talk to us about how, how quickly really can you grow 
your business and your income from flips? So I think like with with growing like the, your income or or how much like what you want your GDP to be a year or however what you want to kind of quantify how successful you've been, um, it, there's you know there's there's it, it's going to happen over time and I, I use the example that you have to really you know stay stay busy and a good example I mentioned the one that I spoke about in Sydney. Now I've done bigger deals, I've done you know much larger deals, but there was. I think what I was looking at, and it was just a, a normal um, auction purchase for a, a one-bedroom flat in Sydney. Numbers looked okay. It was probably just under the 25% return on investment um, that I wanted. But I said, you know what? Like, I just want to stay busy, want to stay proactive and keep keep doing stuff. Um, so I did the deal. In the course of doing the deal, the market went up. So rather than making the projected, you know, bought for 200 sold 30 wanted to sell for like, 260 ended up selling for 300 plus i think 305 or something so that the profits doubled on that deal but beyond the profits doubling on that deal because it was in an upward market being in that property i also got a direct to vendor deal to buy the property upstairs which meant i could buy the freehold which meant i could quickly develop the loft going up into the loft i turned that one bed into a um three beds with a loft conversion and that went from being worth 205 for selling it like sort of smashing ceiling prices in the area for 460,000. Now, that's not going to happen in every deal, but I wouldn't have been in a position to buy that deal if I wasn't proactive. So I definitely think staying active, um, homing your craft um, is really important. Now, in terms of how quickly you can grow, like say to buy that first deal, you might, you know, if, if for example, we had 100,000 pounds and you had a target return on capital of 25%, which I kind of spoke about, you might make 25,000. But then if you're doing more than one deal in a year, when you look at your annualized return, you do that twice and you make 50,000. But because I was fortunate and proactive in that instance, um, you know, that, it, you know, like I was fortunate and proactive in that instance, it meant that rather than making that 25,000 once, maybe twice or 50,000, we went from making twenty five um, the twenty five thousand turned into sixty five thousand, and the second what would have been a twenty five thousand pounds deal maybe day one ended up making you know easily six figures. I can't remember exactly what it made, but you know probably one hundred and fifty thousand plus. So effectively, my capital doubled in that year. And if you repeated that process for a couple of years, you could have the doubling effect. And they say what you. If you double two pounds 20 times, I can't remember if you're a million or something like that. And it's I'm not necessarily saying you can have that level exponential rise in property, but staying busy and staying proactive is going to push you towards that. Yeah. And to be honest, it's about putting it into context where if you're in a position where you saved up some money and using the 100,000 example, and we're using it not because you need 100,000 to get into flips or development deals, but because it's easy maths for us um, and doing maths live is not easy. If you make 30% on a, on a deal you put 100,000 pounds into you, you've made an additional 30 grand. That's the average salary of the, of, of the regular person in this country, right? So you could live like a regular person, go do another flip deal, make another 30,000 pounds, and now your investment pop, now your investment put is 130,000 pounds. Now, what you can buy of £130,000 or the developments you could do with £130,000 might take you onto your next deal a year later, six months later. So 
this a, a year one, you did sixty thousand pounds. You lived on thirty thousand. You put another thirty thousand into the business. Year two, you've now got one hundred and thirty thousand pounds to invest, and now that deal could see you make an additional thirty thousand, or maybe a, a fifty or sixty, or if you get lucky by staying proactive. And when we say lucky, there's a couple of things in in Kazi Sidnam's story that stand out. Number one, he knew it wasn't going to make twenty the twenty five percent return he wanted, and he was accepting of that. He didn't try and force it into a deal that was gonna. <laughs> hit his 25% return. For one, it was like, yep, let's do it. Let's keep the boys busy. Let's maintain the relationship with my builders because they like consistent work to be able to pay their people because they're business owners. And let's get into this property. By doing this development here, it actually allowed us access an opportunity we otherwise wouldn't have had because we wouldn't have been here. And that turned into another property that turned into a six-figure return. So there is an element of you do the work and you create your own luck by being in the right place where opportunity presents itself and the other side of it is that by being hot on your numbers and being in a property space, really, the numbers are so large that you do one flip deal a year, you could be making the average salary of, of someone who lives in the UK. You do two, and now you're in the top 10% of earners in the country. You do four, and you're in the top 1% of people in this country in terms of income. Now, it takes a while to scale to four in a year, but the reality of it is, if you start with one while you're working a full-time job and it's going to be a lot of aggro, it's going to be a lot of pain, you do one. That's an additional 30,000. If you can squeeze two into the next year, that's an additional 60,000. And now you're off to the races. Now you've got credibility and reputation with your builders, with your banks. And you trust yourself to now make the money and you're seeing that sticking to your rules make sense. You can scale very, very quickly. But ultimately, that proactivity means you start being lucky because I don't think I don't think, Kazi, you've walked into another six-figure deal like that without intending to walk into one since, have you? Mm, not, you know, not, no, not, but sometimes you, you can create the luck through proactivity or through experience. So you, I might look at a deal that, okay, worst case scenario, we do this, but if it goes really well, there's, you know, secret plan B that could work. So it's just kind of doing doing it like that, which does work. But I think one thing, I think you spoke to me about this, actually, which is that the good thing about property is that you're leveraging your money. So we use, again, the £100,000 example, for argument's sake. With that £100,000, because you're not dealing with an asset worth 100000 you're maybe dealing with an asset worth 400000 If the market shifts and it goes up considerably, your exposure is considerable to make even more money because you've almost like pro, like positively like leveraged yourself to be in a position to deal with large value assets. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting when you start to think about these things, like my, my first property, the one I live in, I pay 25,000 pounds, but I get 200, I pay 25,000 pounds in deposit, but I get 250,000 pounds worth of value. And when you're looking at that from an investment standpoint, if you can get into a deal that, again, you get into a £100,000 deal that's going to make 25%, you've essentially paid 100000 for £125,000 worth of money, but you never needed to require, you never needed to necessarily have all £100,000 in cash on day one. You could have got into that, correct me if I'm wrong, Kazi, with about sixty grand into that kind of a deal. So, yeah, it just... It's all just how you how you work and you know make your money work as efficiently as possible because you know if 
the, the fortune effectively, you know, favors the proactive. And the busier you are, the more you are out doing things, you know, as, as, as business owners or as investors or as developers, you know, it, it's easy for people to look outwardly and maybe say, oh, they got lucky on that deal, which is true. But you got lucky because you were doing. You got your lucky because you put yourself in a position to receive that luck. Exactly, exactly. And I know we've gone off a little, a little off track here, but I do want to ask this question because we have been using the hundred thousand pounds example for a while now, and maybe that's been burned into people's heads. But if you're looking at a development, and maybe it varies regionally, but if you're looking at getting into a, a flip deal or a development deal, how much money? do you think you need whether that's other people's money or your own money what's a reason about what's a reasonable amount of money would you say for getting started it's not about trying to convert a five-bedroom house somewhere i mean and it, this is the thing though that for a lot of people you know the money could be a lot lower because even when we talk development and adding value we spoke about you know you could be you know your first property is somewhere you're going to develop you're going to add value to and that could be with a 10 percent deposit for somewhere that costs two hundred and fifty thousand pounds at twenty five thousand, and you plan on spending fifteen thousand pounds on works, it could be forty thousand. It could be for a property that costs a hundred thousand pounds, ten percent deposit that you plan on spending six thousand pounds. That's sixteen thousand. So it's all really relative to you know what you're buying and where you're buying it, um, and different strategies as well of how you plan to to add value because you don't necessarily always need the build cost. Some people would buy a property. And with no plans to actually develop it, but just to get the planning permission and sell it on um, for a premium, which is what we call like your planning game. Got it. All right. So that brings us to the end of this half of the episode. And we have covered a lot here. We're talking about flip strategies. We're talking about ways in which you can go from just developing a property and knowing what you're going to do with it to building a business that can scale to seven figures because you're dealing with a high transaction business but because you're proactive in the business you start to create your own luck and, and uh, understanding the key skills you need to really profit from flips and Kazi called it out deal analysis being able to spot a good deal from a bad deal is the most fundamental skill when it comes to this but there are so many other things you need to develop whether that's managing your relationships being able to raise money having an incredible credit score whether that is with a formal credit score credit with people who have access to money people who trust you to deliver when you say yes you mean yes and something horrible needs to happen for you not to be able to commit to that so if you would like to know a little bit more about your next steps and some more tips from Kazi. Stay tuned as we round out this episode where we're talking about how you can start making seven figures a year from flips and developments. If you have any questions or dilemmas that you'd like to have featured on our podcast or on our YouTube channel, go to blackmillennialmoney.com, click the contact page and send it to us. Names will be changed or kept anonymous unless you say otherwise. We are back on this episode of Black Millennial Money where we're talking about how you can build a seven-figure property development business through flips and developments. We have Property by Kazi on the show, aka Kazi Belogan, and he is here with a quick tip for you guys. And remember, these are the types of nuggets that you only get once you've been in the game. So he's been in the business eight years and developed over 10 million pounds worth of property. This is the type of things you need to know. If you haven't got your pen and paper out already, now is the time to do it. And if you haven't had your pen and paper out for this whole time, you need to run this episode back again. Get the pen and paper. But over to you, Kazi. What's a quick tip for this week? Quick tip, quick tip. Okay, I would say 
you just touched on it. Like I've been in the game for a long time, but even before you're in the game, because you're not always ready to start straight away, not being ready to you know dive straight in doesn't mean that you can't be ready. Like even if you want to go swimming, you got to get your trunks on first before you dive in, and this preparation I think is really important. So really, just immersing yourself in the property space. There's you know countless podcasts, YouTube, Instagram clubhouse so many different like you know ways that you can learn like so really immerse yourself in the property space doing that you're going to work out what you like what you don't like what's for you and you can also learn out which kind of strategies are going to match what you want out of property do you want like rental yield so like returns do you want um, capital appreciation something that's going to passively go up over time do you want something that you can add value to so a flip so really determine a strategy that works for what you want out of property. So when you are ready to go, you can sort of, you know, start, you know, start gear one and just go quickly. That's a that's a really, really solid quick tip because it ties back to what we're talking about, about being proactive, because some of you may be sitting there thinking, oh, how am I going to get 25 grand? How am I going to get 10 or even 100 to start doing developments and flips? But what you can do today is really start going to these events, really start studying, really start engaging, following the right people on Instagram. Like you could just... One of the things that I love to do whenever I'm trying to get deep into something is I find people on YouTube, I set up a new YouTube account and just immediately subscribe to all the channels that are about the topic I'm trying to really learn about. You can do the same thing with Instagram. Set up a new Instagram. Just call it your name, property. Cool. Now find all the property people that you're interested in. So your feed is populated with all this content. So you're constantly immersing yourself in this kind of thing. And it's really easy to do. People are like, do Googles, go to the library. No. Nah. Just do the same thing you're doing every day on YouTube, on Instagram, but make sure it's stuff that's going to build towards your future. And when you get a little bit of overload, switch back to your regular Instagram and then start arguing in the shade room comments for a little while. But it's up to you to really have that tunnel vision about where you want to go. So thank you so much for that for that quick tip, Kazi. I, I really enjoyed that one. Now, for the next steps. Now, remember everyone, the next steps are supposed to be super actionable. These are the things you're supposed to be able to do once you park the car, take off your headphones, stop whatever, you, stop whatever you're doing and be able to go off and do it. So, Kazi, what are the three things everyone should do right now to start developing or flipping their first property? Okay, so this is all about getting you ready to, to, uh, to, to start getting in, into property. So, number one, I've mentioned credit is paramount. So, you know, get your credit in order. If you don't know if your credit is or isn't in order, download a report, see where it is. You know, on a lot of the, you know, Xperia, Equifax, ClearScore, you're going to see ways that you can build your credit, proactive ways within a short term. You can see the time periods that you can build them in and how you can take proactive steps towards doing that because it's all about leveraging what you have. You want to make as much money as quickly as possible and credit isn't going to guarantee that, but it's going to be a tool to help you achieve that. Um, number two, Number two, number two, we're doing free, right? Um, so speak to a lender about what you can actually borrow. Because realistically, for you to know what you can do, if you want to start going out there and doing deal appraisal, you want to, don't want to be wasting your time looking at deals that you unfortunately can't currently afford. So having that conversation with a lender, they're probably going to ask for your credit report, more information about you, about your history, and work out what you can borrow. Because once you know how much money you have access to, you can then start to look at, okay, now I can like sort of narrow down here are deals that I can look at. 
here are the types of deals. And so that will put you in a much better place to understand what, what it is that you can do. Now, you haven't got to go and do full on credit searches with them, but you can just look at, you know, in principle, what could I borrow and have that conversation with either a lender, lender or a broker. And then finally, I would say, you know, again, we, we've spoken a lot about this and, and I'm, I'm very frank that you do need capital in property in most instances, like you can raise OPM in some, in some circumstances, there are different ways that you can get into property, but if you want to develop yourself, you're going to need, you're going to need an element of capital. So, you know, one of the best ways to, to, you know, to actually to build that capital is to firstly, to look at how you can cut down current expenses. How can you make yourself more efficient? You know, do a direct debit review. Like how much are you spending? Like is Sky overcharging you? Do you even need Sky? Is BT overcharging you? Because loads of things that we look at 20 pounds here, 30 pounds there, but it all adds up. And then the, set yourself a saving goal. The reason I say that is, like for me, like I started running during the first lockdown and the first time I ran, I just ran like to see, okay, how far can I run? Before I know it, I stopped because I got tired. My legs hurt. My lungs were like, ah, give up. And I just got tired. But then when I started to try and run a distance, so I said, okay, I'm going to do 3K. I'm going to get an app that's going to tell me every time I do 1K. It gives you a split. You start to realize, okay, I'm 20% there. I'm 30% there. I can see how long it took me to get to individual each individual mini milestone. And I think those like micro achievable goals are what, you know, the positive that like, the positive reinforcement you need to help you achieve those long term long term macro goals. There you go. So those are the three things. So just to wrap those up really quickly, get on top of your credit. Super important. We talk about this all the time. We've done a number of episodes on credit. Go back through the archives. We've had people from Experian on here explaining everything you need to do for about your credit. We've had people who work in credit recovery going through it. So go back into the archives, make sure you're on top of your credit. Go and speak to a lender or a broker who's going to give you some advice about what you can borrow. So you actually can window shop with purpose. If you're starting to get your head around deal analysis, know your numbers. There's no point if you make 30 grand looking for a million pound properties to get loans on. It's just not going to happen. But if you can look at maybe 120,000 pound properties or 100,000 pound properties, now you can start to see where you could play. And we did an episode with Seb, the mortgage guy. He's a great broker. He will take the time to explain to you what you need to know and how you need to position yourself. Make sure you tell him Black Millennial Money sent you and he'll take extra good care of you. And lastly, when it comes to being on top of your money, you need to know where your money's going. Because when it comes to doing these deals, you're going to be a bad business owner if you don't know where your personal money is, right? Because that's a rookie mistake a lot of people make when they start in the world of business. They start spending the business money like it's their personal bank account. And you can't do that when you've borrowed other people's money to be here, right? Or where you've got builders to pay. And when you're supposed to be making sure you'll get, you've got your 25% return. Staying on top of your money is how you're going to do it. And Kazi, I'm so, I'm so happy you finally got you on the show a true property expert, the seven-figure businessman. And I know that people that people really, really want to know how to get in touch with you. Clearly, some people do. You're the second biggest property page in the UK on Instagram. But how can people get hold of you? Yeah, so it's uh, property by Kazi, all one word, one Z in the Kazi. Um, that's on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. 
YouTube, hopefully, like sitting on hard drives of, of content. So make sure you subscribe to that one. Be out soon. But otherwise, Instagram I'm always there, floating around, little episode out, like a little live with somebody in the property space every Sunday. So check that out as well. All right, so that's property by Kazi with one Z. All those links will be in the description. But if you want to get on, if you want to get in touch with Black Millennial Money and show us some love, you can find us at BMM Global on Instagram and BMM Global Pod on Twitter. We're also at BlackMillennialMoney.com where we're answering your dilemmas. And if you're wondering how to get onto our Patreon, the link is in the description. But if you go to BlackMillennialMoney.com, you can do it there too. If you want to send us over your dilemmas, you're welcome to do so. Again, head over to blackmillennialmoney.com. And remember, my book is coming out. The link is in the description. Join the waiting list. You don't want to miss it. It's called The Free Circles of Wealth. How immigrant kids and children of working class parents can get rich and stay that way. It's how I paid off all the debt I was in, how I end up having a property, and how I'm going to start investing like Kazi. So if you like the sound of that, click the link in the description and join the waiting list. And I look forward to having another episode of Black Millennial Money next Monday at 6 p.m. Stay tuned. You do not want to miss it.